It is another blessed morning, isn't it? This first Sunday in the month of August this year. It is true as we come together today, certainly we're blessed in so many ways. And I would like to add one announcement to what Brother Gary mentioned. I failed to, to ask him to make this announcement. Might we keep in mind as a congregation that two weeks from today, the third Sunday singing in Putnam County will be here. So at 2 o'clock on the afternoon of, I guess that's August the 19th, isn't it? I believe that's right. So Sunday, August 19th, Pippin hosts the third Sunday singing in Putnam County. So let's keep that in mind. I know in the past it has been the case that uh, we have the afternoon service and then do not meet at 5.30. Is that going to be the way it'll work again? So let's keep that in mind and look forward, of course, to that singing on that afternoon of uh, August the, the 19th. The Family of God, Part 2. Last Sunday morning, we turned our attention to an initial lesson and discussion of the topic of the family of God. And as we did that, we set the stage for a continuing discussion, really. And today, I would invite us to continue that consideration. This opening slide is one that brings us to reflect on the major lesson we learned then. God's family is glorious because the patriarch of that family, God, is glorious. And as we describe that, we highlighted the beauty of the church and how glory, how glorified is that wonderful body. I hope for the next few moments as you and I reflect again on the wording of that song we sometimes sing, a song that's very lovely to so many of us. We're part of the family that's been born again. Part of the family whose love knows no end. For Jesus has saved us and made us His own. Now we're part of the family that's on its way home. That was the first verse of that song, 855, God's Family. You and I, in a very special way, are a part of a very special family. Family of God. As you think about some of the other things that that means, we'll continue that appreciation here in just a moment. But I might ask you to notice... We're going to begin with this emphasis. If we're part of the family, may we never forget this family is very strongly patriarchal. We do what the Father says. He leads the family. He guides the family. He provides for us all the information relative to the way the family is to be. Not only that, He hangs out before us the marvelous destiny as well. For that reason, the opening part of our lesson will be an emphasis that's ours. What is it that makes this family so different? May I suggest one part so strongly offering that answer is an emphasis on the will of the Father. Let's develop it like this. Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Matthew 4 verse 4. On that occasion when the tempter had come before the master and tried to get him to turn stones into bread, Jesus said no. On what basis did he say no? The basis was there was a higher directive than what the devil wanted. May I suggest to you that is something very critical in terms of understanding for all of us. What determines whether a given action is right or wrong? 
in the world in which we live, we all understand that it's quite common for men and women, yea, one and all. You have no right to tell me I can't do this or that. There is a higher standard. How do you know that stealing is wrong? It's because God said so. How do you know that sleeping with another man's wife is wrong? Because God said so. How do you know homosexuality is wrong? Because God said so. You begin to see the point. If we are left to our own devices and standards, anything can be reasoned in some way or another as being plausible or acceptable, but we know better than that. As members of the family, our goal is always, What saith the Scripture? Romans 4 verse 3. Now, there are those who take a very dim view toward that idea. Those who are enlightened and those who think that their approach and their knowledge and their capability is sufficient, they kind of frown on you and me. You mean you'd turn to the Bible to find out whether something's wrong or right? That book was written an awful long time ago. But you and I know that though it may have been recorded a long time ago, its message is timeless. And the things that are wrong today, by virtue of this, will always be wrong. Aren't you thankful to be a part of a family that's anchored to a text, anchored to the Father's will in such a way, we always know where we shall go to find the answers to what determines morality. It's not merely human reflection. For that reason, look at what's next on that slide. You and I are then given a very strong and clear admonition to grow in our knowledge of and in our appreciation of the Father's will. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Second Peter 3 verse 18. That is the key verse in that entire book of Second Peter. It brings before not only the folks of that day, but to you and me today, grow in grace. Now that book develops in a very wonderful way the practicality of doing that. Chapter number 1 describes the ingredients of spiritual growth. What do I need to do adding these things to life? Chapter 2 mentions the opposition to spiritual growth. Here's what will deter me if I'm not careful. Here's what will sidetrack me. Chapter 3 is the motivation for spiritual growth. One by one, then, the whole book of 2 Peter is a dissertation on the realities of spiritual growth. And the admonition to you and me is to grow in this book. As we ponder making that soul, look at what's next. There is a strong appreciation, isn't there, to reaching higher heights of maturity. Could I ask you to notice the wording of Philippians 3.13? Paul said, Leaving those things that are behind and reaching into those things that are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Now might you and I notice that was an apostle speaking this. And yet even he was reaching for those things before. May you and I ever strive to do the same because we're members of this family. And that's what these family members do. Isn't it interesting to think about this family behaving this way? 
And yet we do so in ways that you'll now note with me. The text that Brother Dennis read a moment ago was drawn from Romans chapter 8. Verse number 14 again simply said something about being a son of God. I hope none of us ever lose sight of how special and how exquisite that is. I'm not just Randy Bybee. Put your name in a sentence. You are a son of God if you're a member of the church. You are a person who's a child of God. And as such, we're part of this family. There are certain behaviors and certain things true about this family. Am I holding up my part of the bargain? Are you? Well, look at what this means to be led by the Spirit. That text in Romans 8.14 shadows this one. Ephesians 1.13 and Ephesians 6 verse 17. The latter one of those two reads like this, The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. You and I have been given a sword as a part of this family. Now, it's not a sword that you cut someone's head off with, and it's not a sword like what we read about so often in other texts of the Bible. It's a sword that is a double-edged one in this sense. It can cut going and coming, but it cuts to the heart. You see, it cuts a lot deeper than any other kind of weapon along that line. Hebrews 4.12 says, The Word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You and I, as we carry and are knowledgeable of this, we as members of this family are dedicated to the Father's will. Now, we would be a bit naive not to say this. There are problems. Sometimes issues arise. That's even true in the family. Isn't it so that sometimes our physical families suffer hardships? There are things that happen that we wish didn't, but sometimes they're beyond our control. In Acts chapter 6, the family of God had some problems in that chapter. You may remember some widows were being neglected in the daily ministration. How did the family deal with the problem? Did they ignore it? Did they neglect it? Did they pretend it didn't exist? Oh no, those apostles said, Look out from among you seven men that we may appoint over this business. They handled that problem. So you and I should appreciate the existence of a problem is not by itself something terrible. It's just the way we handle it. Those disciples of the ancient era, they approached that problem, dealing with it in the way that was in accordance to God, because they were members of the family that emphasized the will of God. Let me come a bit full circle then and say this. There are constant challenges that you and I face. How do you and I know that something is or is not right? How do we know that something is or is not appropriate either in our personal lives or in the behavior of the church? The only way we know is because as members of the family, we have a set of bylaws. We call it the Bible. That determines everything permissible by God for us to do, and it condemns everything we must not do. And in so doing, we will always emphatically 
be committed to the book. This is the Father's will. Let's close that slide then with this final observation. There's a dramatic principle to be noted. We stated it earlier in Romans 4.3. What saith the Scripture? That's one of the reasons that we emphasize the study of the Bible. When we come together in Bible studies, for example, those are separate and apart from worship. Why do we gather like this? On Wednesday nights, on Sunday mornings at 9.30? Because it's our eternal conviction that the only way to get to heaven is to do the Father's will, and so we want to do it. And that means we have to know it. May we always encourage one another in light of being serious about those Bible study hours, being committed to them so that we can learn more of the Father's will and strive to do it. Sometimes as we encounter certain things in those study periods, it shakes us terribly. Maybe we're reminded, well, that verse says something directly pointed to me. Whether it's Old or New Testament, the Word of God is that critical. Not only is the family committed to the Father's will, but it's also true that the members of this family exhibit qualities, characteristics, and we're going to discuss a few of them in the time that we have remaining today. Isn't it interesting that sometimes a given family on earth is known for a certain thing? Maybe they're known to be good mechanics. Maybe they're known, say the ladies thereof, to be wonderful chefs and cooks. Maybe they're known to be expert gardeners. Well, isn't it true that this family, the family of God, must be known for certain things? Let's use the Word of God to reveal some of them to us. Let's begin at the top and say this. What about love? I think we have to begin there, don't you? It seems as if that element, that quality, that characteristic is the basis upon which all the others in one way or another are built. Love. Didn't Jesus say in John 13, 35, By this shall all men know you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Now the Lord made that rather plain, didn't He? A litmus test, a means whereby others would be able to identify that you are my disciple, it will hinge on the manifestation of love. Maybe that goes hand in hand with that text in Matthew 22. You recall the scene with me. Someone came to Jesus and said, Master, what is the greatest commandment? Without a moment's hesitation, Jesus said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. But he didn't stop there. The second commandment is like unto it, and it's this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Both of the greatest of all the commandments involve love. The family is known for love, isn't it? What about you and I today? I've listed a number of verses. I thought we would at least step through some of them. I've just asked you to consider that text rather carefully noted in John 13, 35. But notice it wasn't only Jesus that said this. Later, what about the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9? 
you have been taught of God, what? To love one another. Uh, yet a different Bible writer, John, echoed that sentiment in 1 John 3, verse 11. Love one another. The very next chapter highlights this commandment. Maybe it's one of the most well-known passages in all of 1 John. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. You and I then, as members of the family, must exhibit, demonstrate, and live by the code, the pattern, if you please, of love. Jesus' disciples were admonished to do that. And of course, if we are His faithful follower, if we're a member of the family, we must try, strive to do that too. Are you and I doing a good job at this? Well, you'll notice one of the things to be noted, that love, didn't Jesus say on occasion, it's easy to love those that love you. But doesn't that become far more challenging when it's our enemy? But yet Jesus even said in Matthew 5, verses 44 and following, Love your enemies. Pray for them. Do good to them. That never ceases to be hard. That never ceases to be a challenge. To that person who doesn't wish the best for you and me, to that individual who quite frankly would look for opportunities to take advantage. And yet, as those who strive to be members of the family of God, it's our mission to even love those who are enemies. Love. The Greek word is agape. A-G-A-P-E is the way that would look in English, but agape. By definition, it has to do with a love that is motivated by the desire for the best interest of that which is its object. So to say that you love someone is to behave in a manner consistent with what's in the best interest of that individual. And that's the kind of love that motivates you and me as members of this family. It's not a selfish kind of love. We want what's best for that person. That kind of love is a beautiful thing. It's selfless. And you'll notice it leads directly to this next quality. It leads to something to can be, that should be said about behavior. You know, God is very concerned with your behavior and mine. Now, there are certain things you and I can't do anything about, like the color of your skin. You and I are white. There are other people in the world who are red, and there are others who are black, and there are others who are yet different shades of color. We cannot do anything about that. It's determined by genetics and somewhat of environment. But God is very concerned with your behavior and mine. For you see, I choose by behavior. You choose your behavior. And yet, as members of this family, we are committed to behavior that's godly. Look at this verse in Philippians 1 verse 27. As Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, to them he said, Only let this be your conversation. That means your manner of life as it becometh the gospel. And so those Christians in Philippi were told, here's a way you should behave. You behave consistent with the gospel. 
Now, those same marching orders apply to you and me just as surely as it did them. Your behavior and mine, our standard is never determined by the world in the sense of determining the way we will conduct ourselves. Our standard is determined by this book, by the gospel. I realize again, just as we noted earlier, that seems mighty unusual and even strange to many people. There are some in our world would say, you mean to tell me you're going to let a book that's 2,000 years old determine your standard of morality? And you might get laughed at. You might get insulted. You might get rather strongly reviled. But yet your answer in mine is still yes, because this book is the Word of God. Our behavior, you'll notice, is echoed in Ephesians 4, verses 21 to 24, where there you and I, as members of this family, are described as a new man. We have put off the old man, that worldly man, and we live in accordance to the new man. I'd submit to you the greatest sense of refreshment and the greatest sense of renewal comes to members of this family. I'm thankful to be a Christian, aren't you? I'm thankful to be someone who is a member of this family, not only for these qualities, but for the blessings that these family members enjoy. Look at number three with me. Wisdom. There is something to be noted, beautiful, about the wisdom of this family. Our wisdom, you see, rests on a far higher plane. Wisdom... And you might note this. Wisdom in a practical way means this. Knowing how a certain thing is likely going to turn out. Now notice that's not quite the same as knowledge. It's one thing to know something. But there are many times that maybe you and I have appreciated that people have a good, strong, common sense. They have an idea that certain things, certain behaviors are going to turn out a certain way. Have you ever known of your dad or grandpa or maybe some other member of your family who it seems just knew, they knew how certain things were just going to end up? May I submit to you that was at least one attribute of wisdom. All members of this family are encouraged to be wise. I would point you to verses like Proverbs 4 verse 7. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, seek wisdom, and with all thy getting, get understanding. Are you wise? Be honest now. Are you wise? Am I wise? What determines this wisdom is our connection to and our obedience to the things of God. Worldly wisdom is not primarily what he's talking about. You can see that in verses like Ephesians 5, verses 15 and 16. Paul told that church in Ephesus, Walk circumspectly. Be wise. Every day, my friend, as members of this family, we are called upon to walk separate and apart from the world. They're not headed the same place we are. We, as members of this family in a beautiful way, can exhibit and manifest wisdom by knowing ultimately what stands as truth. Because so much of our world isn't interested in truth. That attribute in wisdom leads me to one final thing on this slide. 
We are never haughty. We are not arrogant. We're humble because Jesus said we must be. Sometimes the world seemingly doesn't have much interest in that either. Maybe you've heard that phrase, toot your own horn. May I say as Christians, as members of this family, we humbly try to serve the God of heaven. And that humility is perhaps manifested in verses like 1 Peter 5 verse 6. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will give you grace. Love, that text we noted a moment ago, is described in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 like this. Love never is boastful. Do you and I ever fall into the trap of bragging? Be honest. I know when others do that, it's pretty easy to fall into the trap yourself. As Christians, we must be cautious about that. Because again, in our attribute of love for not only them, but love for God, Romans 12, 3 says, Don't ever think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. And therefore, we as members of this family are keenly interested in behaving like God says we should. I love being a part of that family, don't you? What better way to live than these things can you think of? Now, those attributes really proceed even further along the line. It does so by looking at some of these. One by one, comfort. We need comfort in so many ways. We are thankful for the avenue of comfort, and may I suggest that the ultimate and final comfort is found from God according to 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and following. Paul, in fact, as he wrote that letter to the church in Corinth, he told them rather explicitly, we have been comforted of God so that we can offer you comfort. Christian friend, appreciate the comfort that God offers. In the midst of circumstances that try, and in the midst of a world that so often weighs upon our heart, Maybe there are people that you work alongside and their choices and their decisions in life are so different. Be comforted by the things of God. Think how often Peter and Paul and even Jesus not only understood the comfort that God offers, but they used it as a strong support to proceed through the challenges of life. Paul said he did that. To that comfort, why don't we add this one? The remarkable truth of forgiveness. Perhaps we ought to at least camp here for a moment. This forgiveness is highlighted from two different perspectives. First, God's forgiveness of us. The world is not forgiven. Those who live according to the world are not forgiven. But those in God's family are. Those sins that you and I have committed, they were washed away when we were baptized. We no longer will face the guilt of them. I'd submit that there are very few thoughts that are richer and more beautiful than that. At the moment that you entered the baptismal waters, you were covered in sin. Blackened, if you please, in the language of Isaiah 1.18. And yet, as you came out of that water, white as snow, as this 
wool of a sheep. You were cleansed. We were in fact in a position that all of those mistakes, as far as the guilt of them, will never have to pay for it. One of the things about God's forgiveness is once He forgives and He holds that, of course, against us no more, Psalm 103 says, He removes those sins as far from us as the east is from the west. We will never have to answer for them. Now that is a magnificent thought. Forgiveness. And yet you and I are told that as members of this family, we excitedly forgive one another. When a brother or a sister approaches and says, I'm sorry, I wish I hadn't said that. I fear that I gave you the wrong impression. Would you forgive me? And yet as Christians, we not only thrill at the thought of it, we are excited to do it. Now this idea of forgiveness is of course taught by Jesus in Matthew 6 verse 14. He says, if you won't forgive one another, your Father in heaven won't forgive you. And so we yearn to be that like our Heavenly Father in the sense that we look forward to forgiveness. May I ask that we look at that other verse as well. In Ephesians 4 verse 32, Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Now note again with me that Paul wrote that to the church at Ephesus. The church. You and I thus seek to become masters at forgiveness. We know God forgave us. We seek to forgive appropriately others. I hope that that discussion of forgiveness is a beautiful thing for each of us, practically speaking, because it also leads us to note three quick ones that we might also note. Patience. How are you at your patience? Do you allow patience to run pretty thin on occasion in your life? I mention this one because I suppose it can be a challenge to many of us. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, Paul said, Be patient. Sometimes in our families that becomes one of the greatest challenges. Parents, are you patient with your children? Appropriately so. Children, are you patient with your parents? Appropriately so. Husbands, are you patient with your wife? Again, appropriately so. Wives, what about with your husbands? We must learn then, if we would be members of this family, to behave in a way such that patience is an appropriate virtue that we exhibit. That patience, I've asked you to notice, it will begin as we wait on the Lord. Psalm twenty-seven, fourteen commands of us, wait on the Lord. And again I say, be patient, wait on the Lord. That degree of patience will go a long way toward helping reduce the stress that sometimes our world suffers beneath. That patience, though, must be married with perseverance. The word perseverance means don't give up. stick to That idea is found on so many occasions. I just selected a very few passages. 2 Peter 1.6 Peter wrote on that occasion about those particulars relative to spiritual growth. He said, 
Add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience. That word patience in the original language means perseverance. No matter what befalls you, Christian friend, no matter what the challenges at work or in the family or otherwise you and I may, may, may be called on to face, don't ever let it crush your faith. Don't ever let it cause you to slide apart from the God that loves you and Jesus that died for you. And don't ever lose sight of the family. Don't stop coming to services. Even if a brother or a sister has offended you in some way, the Bible says go to them and talk to them. Don't just stop coming. That's not the way the family is supposed to behave. Maybe that person doesn't know they offended you. Don't fault them for ignorance. When you explain it to them, I strongly suspect they'll say, I'm sorry, I didn't know. I suspect they'll say, I want to apologize and I want to ask you to forgive me. That's the way the family behaves. One final thing. The members of the family encourage each other. We really do. We understand that this journey through life is a journey that certainly affords its moments of challenge. Those are true not only in our individual families, but they're true even in our spiritual family. There are times when things hurt our heart. People make decisions that trouble us. But may we always be encouraged. We encourage each other. In Hebrews 10 verse 24, Consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. If that isn't a verse about encouragement, I don't know what else it would be. Provoking each other in a way that's good. There are times I know that people in the world can provoke us in a way that's bad. That verse means provoke each other in a way that's good. Being members of this family, wouldn't you say, is a pretty special thing because all of us seek to exhibit these qualities. May I say, as we develop these more thoroughly in the additional lessons to come, we might close that by saying edification. One of the three things listed as the work of the church is edification. We try to do that. As we strive to do that, of course, each of us has a part to play. Today, if there would be anyone in this audience, perhaps who has arrived at a point in life, and you know that you've never obeyed the gospel, you've never rendered your life in total submission to Christ, don't you know the current status in which you are? You've reached a point where indeed you are separate and apart from God and you know it. Don't you want to rush to His side? He died on the cross shedding blood that you might be saved. The plan of salvation is what introduces you into this family. You don't just enter this family of God by saying, I'd like to be a member. You don't enter by paying dues. You don't enter by having some testimonial on the part of some rather wealthy person that you are worthy of entrance. That's not the way we enter we enter by obeying the gospel. In Galatians 3.26 it says, You're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. 
an individual who would walk down this aisle, not yet a Christian, you're not yet a member of God's family, but upon your faithful baptism, when you come out of that water, Christ has added you to the family. Today, if we could help you in that way, we'd be privileged to do it. If you have become a member of the family, but you haven't lived up to your calling, you have lived beneath your privileges. Maybe you haven't exhibited some of these qualities the way you know you should. We want you to know that God loves you. We love you. And we want to help you and encourage you. Today, if we could be of help to you, praying on your behalf, we'd be delighted to do that too. We would only ask you to let us know the way we could help and do it now. While together we stand and while we sing.